Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. This is God's word for us today. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, would you please, dear God, add your blessing to the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, I am asking you for something supernatural this morning. Would you show us Christ? Would you reveal your glory? Would you change our lives? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. It's been two weeks since the last time we looked together at the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Thank you to Jason for opening God's word for us in Zechariah last week. And I told you two weeks ago that Paul was about to pray for the Christians living in and around Ephesus. And he almost did in chapter 3, verse 1. But then he took himself on a little tangent from verses 2 through 13. And in that section, Paul, <clears throat> Paul talked about his suffering for the gospel, about the glorious mystery that the Jews and the Gentiles are being made into one new family of God, and about the eternal plan of God that gives us access to Christ in the throne room through his own, as his own beloved children. And now Paul's going to get back on track and he's going to present a beautiful prayer for the church. This is actually the second such prayer for the church in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If I gave the sermon a title, it would be another prayer for the church. The first was chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And as we take a look at this prayer, we're going to find four points to keep with us. Now, as, uh, as we get ready to get started, is it okay if I talk to you for a second, just, just as a pastor, as a friend, maybe not from a preachy standpoint? Paul's going to pray for this church something that any, any good pastor wants for the church he serves. What, what Paul prays here is something that I want for myself and for you. And even as we get started, there's a few things I know. I know 
that what we are going to see this morning is really important. And I know that I don't have the words or the skill on my own to make you see just how important it really is. But I do know that the Lord who inspired this text does have the power to help you and help me see how important this is. So Christians, will you even now, even as I talk to you, will you ask God to stamp this text deeply on your soul? It will make a difference. Our first point this morning, bow before the Lord over all. Bow before the Lord over all. Verses 14 and 15 say, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. In this book, Paul has thought a lot about the gospel. He's thought about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's thought about the fact that God is building for himself one single people, one single family, one single body, one single holy temple made up of people from all people groups on earth. The plan of God has been a glorious mystery hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in Christ. And because Paul has thought about the glories of the gospel in all of its facets, Paul prays. Something about the truth of the gospel, something about the truth that Paul wants the Ephesians to understand, drives him to his knees before the throne of God to plead with the Lord to do a thing. When he references the Father, especially with Paul on his knees, it reminds us that Paul in humility is approaching the God who loves him and who is his authority. And when Paul connects the Father to every family in heaven and on earth, he's pointing out the fact that he's approaching the one great God who is over all. There is no corner of humanity that can claim life apart from God. There's no corner of humanity who can claim to have more of God because of their ethnicity. No angel can claim life apart from God. No demon can claim freedom from the authority of God. The Father, Paul speaks of, is the Father over all, the Creator, the Lord. Don't let yourself go down the road here of the secular philosophy that would say, oh, Paul is speaking of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all mankind. That's not what he's doing here when you hear people talk often about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all mankind, they're usually embracing a worldly philosophy that rejects the exclusivity of Jesus toward universalism. But Scripture is clear. God is father in a family relationship sort of way only to those who are his. You don't believe me? Think about John chapter 8 when Jesus is talking to the religious teachers. They opposed him, and Jesus says that they have the devil for their father. 
not claiming the devil's their creator, but the devil is the one to whom those men were loyal subjects and from whom they got their identity. But Paul here is bowing before God in humility while declaring that God is the Lord over all peoples everywhere, heaven, earth, wherever you can think of. Paul is kneeling in submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is approaching the only God there is, the only God who made the universe, the only God who can give life and who can give hope. Now, honestly, friends, that stuff should be obvious to us. But it's worth it to catch it again. It's worth it to learn from it and for us to call one another to bow before God. I'm not about physical positioning of your body there so much as that you and I humble ourselves. If you wish to approach God, even when you've been given the right to approach Him with boldness and assurance as we saw in 3.12, you still approach God in humility. God is God and you are not. By the way, you never will be. God is Father. You are child. God is King. You are servant. God is Master. You are slave. That this God would love us and treasure us and welcome us is a stunning thing. That He builds a family from all the peoples on earth is wonderful. So we see Paul bow. We see that we too should be humble before God. And now, now we get to see what Paul prays for the church. There will be three key things that Paul prays for, and there will be a closing doxology, a closing praise in the prayer. So second point, still with me? Pray for God's sanctifying strength. Pray for God's sanctifying strength. Verse 16 to the beginning of 17 says that, by the way, notice the that's here. They're going to come with everything we're praying for. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what Paul here prays, this is big. How do we know? How do we know that what Paul is praying is big? He's praying that God will do something according to the riches of his glory. So let me ask you, how big is that? What do you think? Big. <laughs> That's the only word I've got, right? How big are the riches of the glory of God? What do you think Paul's trying to communicate here, folks? God is infinite in his glory. Thus, the riches of God's glory are as limitless as God himself. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So according to the endless, unfathomable, unsearchable riches of the glory of God, to that degree, 
to that level, Paul is praying that God give us strength. Y'all, that is a lot of strength that he's asking for. That is an unlimited strength that he's asking for. That is a soul-changing strength that he's asking for. Is Paul praying that we have unlimited physical strength? No, that would be silly. Paul is praying that we be strengthened by God according to the endless glory of God in our inner being. Paul is bowing before the God over all the universe to ask him to give you and me God-sized strength in our souls. Paul prays that God will give us power through his spirit. And why would you need that power from the spirit of God? Why would you need that much power? Why would you need God to give that much strength to you? You need it so that Jesus Christ may dwell in our heart through faith. Now that should raise a question if you're paying attention. Isn't it true that Jesus Christ always dwells in the hearts of those who follow him? Isn't that true? You're scared to answer, aren't you? (laughs) He might be tricking me. Is Paul contradicting himself in suggesting that if you don't get more power, you won't have Jesus? No. You know God never contradicts himself. So you have to know he's got something to teach us here. The Greek word that's here translated dwell, that Christ would dwell in your heart, it's an interesting little compound word. It's it's katoikio, from a word that means down, kata, down, and oikos, the word house. Jesus might downhouse you. The idea of this is more than being present in your heart. Paul is suggesting that we need the power of God to work in our souls, not so that Jesus would be present in our hearts, but so that he could really settle down and make his home with us. Now, what's the difference between present in a house and really settling down in it and making it your home? You guys know what that would be, right? When you settle down into a house, what do you do to that house? Anybody? You make it your own. You dwell in it. What do you do, though? You paint. Good gosh, do you paint. When you, you reshape things in the house to make it reflect you and the things you love, right? You, you decorate. You paint. If you are my wife, you hang a wreath on every available wall and door and window when it's Christmas time, regardless of whether those wreaths reach out and get your poor husband who can't see them. Do any of y'all do counseling? Just, no, no. She does, I love, I love that my wife makes our house beautiful and homey and welcoming to people. I really do. 
But when you settle in, when you, when you really settle down, you change the house to look like the things you value. So Paul's not saying you could be a Christian without the Spirit of God in you. Paul's not suggesting that you could be a Christian without Jesus in your heart. What he's praying for, however, is that God will give you huge power so that you will, as Jesus lives in you, be changed by Jesus that he might more comfortably live in your heart. Paul is praying that Jesus would make your heart not just a place he goes, but his home. Not just a place to visit. Paul is praying that Jesus will tidy up the place, that he'll change the color scheme. Some of us need Jesus to install in us new counters and floors redecorate our lives so that our lives look like they are his. That's what he's after. Does that make sense? Now, how big a deal is this? Christian, ask God to help you feel this deep down. Paul is praying from his knees that the Father, in accord with his infinite glory, might empower you through his spirit to be a home for the son? Is that not beautifully triune? Paul is praying that God will use all the might at his disposal to reshape your life for Jesus. Now, if Jesus is going to be at home in your life, you personally, sitting here in these chairs or the lucky ones at the tables in the back, if Jesus is going to make your life a home, what needs to change in your life? In a word, everything. And that everything sort of change requires the full might of the Almighty. Listen to me. Every room in the house that is your life needs to reflect Jesus. Every available space in your life should be His to utilize. All is repurposed to Jesus. So think about your heart. Does your heart reflect that Jesus lives there? Do the things you love look like things Jesus loves? When you feed your brain, do you feed it with things that are true, for real, and honor Jesus? When you give yourself comfort in times of pain, do you find comfort in ways and in things that honor Jesus? When you find genuine pleasure, is your pleasure found in things that please Jesus? Christians, this is one of those spots where I desperately want us to get the point but only the Lord can drive this home for you. Pray for this strength of God. Pray that God would give you power in your inner self to become a true dwelling place 
for Jesus Christ. Pray that God give you power in your soul to repent of sin, to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. Pray to want what you should want here. That is sanctifying power. But there's more than sanctifying power that Paul prays for the church. Let's keep going. Third point. Third point. Pray to know God's love. Pray to know God's love. If you're a a diligent note taker, you might underline or circle the word know. That's going to be the point of emphasis. The end of 17 to the beginning of 19. That, what do I pray? I pray that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So the next part of the prayer of Paul for the people mixes a metaphor. Paul's talking about you having a solid foundation. Plants are rooted buildings are grounded and if we want to be sturdy like trees or stable like houses we need a solid foundation under us we need to be rooted and grounded in love verse 18 paul says he wants us to have strength to comprehend something This sounds like the prayer of Paul in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Paul wants us to understand a truth with all the saints. There is something he wants us to get that all of the saved from all over the world, from every generation, have known something of this truth. There's something he wants you to get. Paul is pointing that there's there's a mystery of Christ. It unifies all saints from all generations, from all ages. And here Paul uses terms, get this, from geometry. How many of you are cranked to get some geometry in church today? Right. Right. Where's Mary right when I need her? Right. He wants God to show us the breadth and length and height and depth. Paul wants you to have a thorough bottom to top, side to side, inside to outside understanding of some super important truth. He wants you to get it deep down. Isn't it funny that it's in verse 18, he says all this stuff, and he doesn't tell you what he wants you to know? It's verse 19 that he tells us. He prays for us to know the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses all knowledge. This big prayer, dear friends, is that you would know, really know, thoroughly know the love of Jesus. Now, Don't let the nearly contradictory sides of what was just said pass you by, right? Paul asked for God, accomplished something according to the infinite riches of his glory. That should cover everything that needs to be covered. He he prays that we will have strength to know something. No surprise, no problem. But the thing we need to know requires a spiritual strength to match the infinite riches of the glory of God so that people like you and me could understand the love of Jesus because the love of Jesus actually surpasses knowledge. 
How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? How can you know the thing that's too big to know? The answer is by the power of the Spirit of God, by the presence of Christ in you, by the gracious kindness of the Father. That is how you can know a love that is too big to know. Now, Reformed Christian friends, we have to stop. And you've got to let this waterfall just flow over you. If you don't stop and feel, not just stop and think, stop and feel, if you don't do that, you'll miss this. You know, as a generality, I will say that many Reformed brothers and sisters in our churches are pretty good with the thinking, with the doctrine, with the law, with the argument, with the apologetic. But right here, Paul is praying for you to have a knowledge, but it's an unknowable knowledge. It's a knowledge too big for you. It's a knowledge too big for your brain. And the knowledge that God has for you is not some weird, mysterious, obscure, hard-to-explain doctrine. The knowledge is knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, how are you, Christian, how are you at knowing the love of Christ? This is not a thing you know simply with your head. This is not a formula. It is a gracious experience. Let me try to make it make sense. Before I moved to Las Vegas, how many of you are not native Las Vegasians? Las, Las Vegans? Before I moved to Las Vegas, and before you moved to Las Vegas, I knew with my brain that a 110 degree day would be a hot day. Right? Everybody in their head knows that. But that knowledge is an entirely different thing in a Walmart parking lot here in the city in August. Right? There's a lot of truths like that, a lot of knowledge you only get through, through experience, right? For example, a single person, you all remember being single? Some of you. As a single person, did you know with your head marriage might be hard? Yes. Y'all, yes. only married people get it. Right? Now, at the same time, I would say this, only a person who has experienced the actual joy of marriage, even through the struggle, can know what a blessing marriage is. Single people can know, yes, I know marriage is a blessing, only the married person gets it. Does that make sense? You might know from watching a YouTube video that a particular concert would be really cool to see. But until you're in the arena with the crowd, hearing the music, feeling the sound, experiencing the energy, singing along, 
seeing the laser lights and the explosions if, if it's the right kind of concert. It's only then that you get it, right? Or you might know that the Grand Canyon is beautiful from a postcard. You could know that, can't you? But isn't there a difference when you stand on the rim and feel the wind coming up and look down at a river a mile below? That's when you get it. Paul is praying that God, by all God's mighty power, would give you and me the strength and capacity to get it, to get the love of Jesus. God wants this to hit your brain, to use your brain, but to rip past your brain, through your heart, into your soul. God wants us to get it deep down, the glorious love of Jesus Christ for us. So, are you a Christian? Jesus loves you. Stop. Get it. Jesus loves you. I'm not saying Jesus is willing to accept you among a pack of other believers. Jesus is not receiving you as an add-on. You Amazon shoppers know about that, right? Where there's like the add-on item that you can have for a certain price if you'll buy something else. Jesus isn't looking at you like that. Jesus does not take you as an add-on. Jesus, Christian, loves you. Yes, you're a sinner. No, you don't deserve it. No, his love for you is not based on your performance, but Jesus loves you. His love for you is real. His love for you is deep. His love for you is powerful. His love is world-changing. And I fear, I fear because we do spend so much time rightly reminding ourselves of our sin and our inability before God, which we do need to know. Sometimes we miss out on the truth that God wants us to get this. Jesus loves us. Jesus genuinely cares for you. The king of the universe cares for you. It's the Advent season. We have candles. I have no idea if they're surviving over here. They're not, but it's it's a time when we celebrate the Savior's birth. But what does it mean to celebrate the Savior's birth? Jesus simply to take on humanity sacrificed beyond your wildest dreams. Jesus stepped out of heaven. He set aside his rights. He willingly took on the hardships and the frailties of humanity. And then he went further by going to a cross and suffering our death so that we might be made right with God. Jesus loves us enough to die for us. Jesus loves you, Christian, enough to die for you. God wants you to get this deep down in your soul. 
Paul prayed that God would empower you to get it. As your pastor, I want you to get it deep down. The thing we do called Christianity is supposed to be more than a way for you to exercise your brain and live a moral life. God wants you to know by brain and by experience that Jesus loves you. The perfect, glorious, wonderful, almighty Son of God loves you. Pray, dear Christian, pray that God would let you know this. With me? I wish I believed that I thought you got it already, but I don't yet. Pray that God would overwhelm you with the truth that Jesus loves you. Fourth point, pray to be filled with God's fullness. Pray to be filled with God's fullness. The end of verse 19 says that, I pray that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So many ways here, this sort of summarizes everything that we've already been praying. He wants us to be empowered and strengthened in our souls so Jesus can live in our hearts. He wants us to be empowered to know in a deep and personal way the love of Jesus Christ for us. And in case there's anything we're missing in our understanding of this relationship that we have with God, Paul simply prays that all of the fullness of God would fill us, filled with his filling, filled with his fullness what is glorious about this is that Paul, when he talks about the fullness of God, he's often talking about how Christ fully, perfectly represented God to humanity. In the letter to the Colossians, written at the same time as the Ephesians, in, t- in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says about Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 of Colossians, Paul says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the cap on top of this prayer is that Paul, inspired by God, is praying that the people of God be filled with the fullness of God. He's praying that they get an experience of of all that God is. Now, he's not saying that you can contain all of God, right? You're not big enough for that. But Paul is praying that through genuine life experience, you can find yourself full to overflowing with the things that God is, that you would know all of who God is. We need to know God's strength, his love, his justice, his holiness, his kindness, and all that God is. And what I want to do here with this last phrase is just call us to stop. Because you need to be praying here. Even while you're sitting here, you need to be praying here to know God. To know God's fullness. It's a real thing. To know God by personal experience is a real thing. As the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Christianity is a long haul. Following Jesus is rightly said to be a marathon, not a sprint. And we can go through days, we can go through months, we can go through years when the faith is a hard slog. 
And if we're not careful, we can get ourselves to a place where we minimize focus on the experience of the presence of God in our lives. But Christian friends, this prayer, this prayer is a reminder. It's a wake-up call for your soul. This prayer from Paul points out to you and me that there is something more, something richer, something intangible that changes us in our very souls. This prayer reminds us that there is something good in you asking God for the strength to be changed by Him, for the unfathomable knowledge of His love, for the joy of being filled to overflowing with all that our Lord is. Just like Paul, bow on your knees and plead with the Lord that He fill you with Himself because that's a gift He promises He will give. And then Paul's prayer will come to a beautiful conclusion with confidence and praise. Our fourth point this morning, pray for God's glory. Pray for God's glory. Look at the last two verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This last section is what a scholar would call a doxology. The Greek word for glory is the word doxa, doxology, a, a thing of praise, a declaration of praise and the glory of God. So when we sing the song called the doxology, what are we singing? Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him. It's a declaration of his glory. A doxology is a declaration of the glory of God, a praising of God. And you find prayers that are doxologies all through the New Testament. And this one, it's a fitting conclusion to the prayer Paul prays, no doubt about it. But it's also a fitting conclusion to everything that we've studied from Ephesians 1 through Ephesians 3. Paul is about to make a transition. He's about to shift gears here from describing the mysteries of the gospel to calling us to live differently because of the gospel. But before we get to the call to transformed living, Paul will punctuate this section with praise. When Paul describes God in verse 20, notice that he describes God with a growing, building understanding that God is able to do absolutely anything he wants. Right? Do you see it there? God is able. It's a good word. God is able to do more. That's even bigger. He is able to do abundantly more. That's bigger still. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask. God can do more abundantly than all we think. The mighty power of God, the fullness of God, the strength of God is at work within us, and God can do anything, anything, anything He wants, even in your life. What a claim God's making here. Do you ever feel weak? No? Yeah. 
Do you ever feel personally incapable of doing what God wants? God is able. God is able to work in you. In fact, get this, God is able to do more than you could even imagine. God is able to do in you more than you would ever dare to ask. Your imagination is too small to paint a picture of what God can do in your life. And that's why we keep praying for God's strength and love and fullness. And to the God who can do anything he desires, anything at all, be glory. The word glory, it's a, it's, it's a weighty word. It, it has to do with God's honor. It has to do with his worth. It has to do with his, again, weight, the massiveness that is to God. It has to do with his shining, stunning, breathtaking perfection. God made you for his glory. God designed you for the demonstration of his greatness. And no single thing will ever fill your soul with joy, anything like what it will be filled with joy when you experience the glory of God. When we pray glory to God, by the way, we're not asking for God to get some more glory. God is the sum of all glory. God is already infinite in his glory. We can't add to God's glory, but we can proclaim it. We can experience it. We can declare it. And that's what we do as Christians. When we pray, we declare God is glorious. When we sing, we declare God is glorious. When we obey the commands of God, we declare God is glorious. When we share the gospel, we let other people know God is glorious. And where, friends, look at verse 21, where is the glory of God supposed to be seen? First, in the church. We're here for the purpose of glorifying God. And I will remind you time and time and time again, if you think you can glorify God best apart from the local church, you are biblically mistaken. God's word connects you to the local church so that you might glorify him here as your main focus. doesn't mean there's not ministry that you can do or things to learn from or, from or gain from outside the local body, but your primary focus for glorifying God, Christian, should be this local congregation if this is your church. God is glorified as the church all over the world honors him through series of local congregations being dedicated to his glory. And God is glorified in Christ Jesus. The person and the work of the Son is glorious. Jesus builds the church. Jesus saves sinners. Jesus fills us with his fullness. Jesus continually shines forth the glory of God as we know him more. And this glory of God, you know what? It's going to be known from generation to generation. It's going to be known from age to age. It's going to be known forever and ever. It will not stop. It is an all-time, never-ending purpose for the universe that we live in that the glory of God be on display. We are here for the glory of the magnificent God who made us. 
and that ending declaration, the word amen, is a term of agreement. It's the way that Paul and his readers put their voices together and say, yes, I agree to everything that was just said about the glorious God who saves people for himself from all nations through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So yes, Christians, join in that amen. Pray for God's glory. I said it when we opened this passage. I said it when we opened. This is a section that I pray will get deep, deep, deep down. If you're not a follower of Jesus, for some reason, I pray that you will be. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to turn from your sin. You need to cry out to Jesus to have mercy on you and save your soul because of his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. And if you need help to know how to do that, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the church elders, one of the mature, godly men of the church, women of the church. Let us help you. Come talk to somebody right when service is done. Don't wait. And... If you are a believer here this morning, I pray that God will make you get it. This prayer calls us out of a sterile academic faith to one that is vibrant and full of genuine love for God. Bow before God. Pray for his strength that can change your life to be a home for Jesus. Pray for an experiential knowledge of Jesus, a love of the love of Jesus, of a love that goes beyond anything you could ever understand. Pray for God to fill you with his fullness and pray that God be glorified in you and in the church forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, I still know myself here to be ridiculously inadequate to plumb the depths of what you want us to get and feel. I pray, God, that you will help us get it. Have your glorious grace and power come upon the feeble, feeble words and emotions we have and help us get it. Help our lives become homes for Jesus. Help our minds to know the love of Jesus. Help us to be filled with the fullness of God Almighty. Help us, I pray, that we would be a people who give you glory forever and ever. Work in us how you will. Please, God, even for the Christian right now who says, I don't feel that stuff, start working that work by your gentle, sweet Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.